John's Gospel, chapter 4. And we've been looking at, now last week we were looking at part 3 on the subject, a conversation about worship. The first two parts, I would advise you, if possible, to listen to them, and they're on audio online. Uh, Obviously, there's no video of these Bible studies. But if you listen to the first two parts, because I bring you through a theme, and I hope to touch and round it up like the two ends together, like a circle tonight, if we get there. And part one was looking at how our worship is to be directed. That worship should be directed to Christ and Christ alone. Nowhere else. And nowhere else. And that's not according to what I say, that's according to what the scripture says. So we looked at that, we showed the biblical explanation, if you want, the apologetics of that in part one. And then in part two, we looked at how the Lord Jesus, in this conversation that we're going to read again, said that there would be no worship on Mount Gerizim, nor would there be any worship in Jerusalem. That worship would be within the new temple, that is not a temple made with hands, built in Jerusalem that we hear about, but it is the temple of his body, that you and I. Now, we looked at that the last night, which was two weeks ago. We had part three to look at last week, but when we started to sing and praise and worship, uh, the Lord just didn't allow us. So we had to go into time of prayer and seek in the face of the Lord. And it was a blessed time last week. So this is part three. Actually, it was give me time to re uh, just re, remo- uh, remove a couple of things and jiggle it about a bit even between then and now. Let's read from John's Gospel, chapter 4. Mark this chapter uh, because we will be referring to it uh, as time goes on this evening. Let your eye run down. This is Jesus meets a woman at the well. And just for time's sake, for our opening reading, uh, let's go down to... Verse 19. The woman saith unto him, unto Jesus, Sir, I perceive that thou art a prophet. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, that's Mount Gerizim, in Samaria, northern Israel. And ye say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. That is in the temple that was then in Jerusalem. Okay? Jesus saith unto her, Woman, believe me, the hour cometh when ye shall neither in this mountain nor at Jerusalem worship the Father. Ye worship, you know not what. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour cometh, and now is, when the true worshippers, underline that's very important, talking about worship, true worshippers, Jesus said. So it means if there's true worship, there's false worship. Okay? The true worshippers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father seeketh such to worship him. God is a spirit. And they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Keep your Bible open there. You see, as we have looked at this, Jesus said to the woman here at the well, he's thirsty, must needs go through Samaria. Meets the woman at the well. She's a woman of ill repute. She's a very bad name. She's had five husbands. She's on number six. And uh, the Lord says, that's not your husband. Now, if I get time tonight, I'm going to show you how that's actually prophetic. And really, it's symbolic of what had happened 
to the northern kingdom of Israel. And we'll look at that just in case I don't get to it. Mark down and write, read it when you go home, Second Kings chapter 17. So when you read that, we've already read that in times past. And who were the people of the Samaritans? They were not Israelites. They were not uh, of the northern kingdom of Israel that were dispersed, for they were gone. There's, there were a, a, a tithe, if you want, a, a remnant left behind hundreds of years before, 700 years before this or more. And in Second Kings 17, we'll tell you that the king of uh, of Assyria, who carried the northern kingdom of Israel away captive, they started to populate them with other people. And let me put this out of the way then. It's out of the way and we'll go on in. Let's go to Second Kings 17. That means then we've, we've done a full circle on this bit. And people don't realize, you see, why was the Lord to meet this woman... Obviously, it was for the salvation. Obviously, it was for her to see, you're a prophet, she says to him. Then she declares him the Messiah after their conversation about worship. Talks about revelation of who Christ is. Second Kings 17. Just let me find it as well. So notice this. Let your eye run down to verse 24. And the king of Assyria brought men from Babylon and from Kutha and from Eva and from Hamath and from Sepharavim. And he placed them in cities of Samaria. That's the northern kingdom. This is where this woman ends up hundreds of years later. Instead, no, not as well as, but instead of the children of Israel, they possessed Samaria and dwelt in the cities thereof. And so it was at the beginning of their dwelling there that they feared not the Lord. Therefore the Lord sent lions among them which slew them. Wherefore they spake to the king of Assyria, saying, The nations which thou hast removed and placed in the cities of Samaria, know not the manner of the God, notice, know not the manner of the God of the land. Therefore he hath sent lands among them, and behold, they slay them, because they know not the manner of the God of the land. Then the king of Assyria commanded, saying, Carry thither one of the priests whom you brought from thence, and let them go and dwell there, and let them teach them the manner of the God of the land. Then one of the priests whom they had carried away from Samaria came and dwelt in Bethel and taught them how they should fear the Lord. Howbeit every nation made gods of their own and put them in the houses of the high places which the Samaritans had made, every nation in their cities wherein they dwelt. Now I notice, so the house of Israel, the northern kingdom, were carried away. The Assyrians carried them away captive. The Assyrians decided, let's repopulate the northern land by other peoples whom we have captured. So they moved them out of their nations around about and fill up northern Israel with them. Okay, so they're not Israelites at all. So then all of a sudden, all these other gods are, are worshipped, um, so-called gods are worshipped, and they start making idols and statues to bow down before. And that's breaking the laws of the God of the land, who was Yahweh, Jehovah God himself, the God of the Bible. And so what happens is there's judgment comes because they're idolatrous. They've made idols, praying to idols, statues, calves and all, golden calves and all that sort of stuff still were there, and all the gods of the heathen. Now, whenever they done that, they asked for a priest to come who was in the northern kingdom. But what they're not realizing was the northern kingdom had become so far apostatized and away from God, that's why they were carried away. 
So they bring this priest in who knew nothing about God. Starts to teach them the ways of the Lord or the God of the land. But he's still teaching them wrong because he is an apostate himself, hence he was carried away. He's not from the priestly line of, of Levi. He's not in the, north, the southern kingdom of Judah and he wasn't from the temple in Jerusalem. So what happens is he teaches them false worship. He teaches them apostate worship. And that stays in the land, and there's a thread of the God of Israel in it. But they're not Israelites. And there's a thread of God of, of Israel in it, uh, the God of Israel in it, but it's not the true Hebraic Israelitish worship. So what happens is they start bringing in what's known as um, their gods. Now, there's five peoples with gods really mentioned here. Notice this, verse 30. And the men of Babylon made Sukkoth Benoth, and the men of Kuth made Nergal, and the men of Hamath made Ashima, and the Avites made Nizba and Tartak, and the Seraphites burnt their children in the fire to Adramalak, Adramalak, the god of the Sarah, Sepharavan. Now if you note that and mark them down, there's five different peoples there with their gods. Some of them are gods are mentioned twice, or there's two gods linked into one form of worship. That's the five husbands. Do you see that? That's the five husbands. Who's husband number six? Because Jesus at the well in John 4 says, you've had five husbands to this woman, and the one you're with now, now is not your husband. Well, it's the, it's the apostate religion of the priest that had come in. It was the apostate, idolatrous religion of the priesthood wasn't true religion, wasn't true worship of God. And so Israel's priesthood in the north, as it were, that is the northern house of Israel, their priesthood had become so far away from God. Here is husband number six. But yet that's where she gets our God of our father, our Jacob. Our father Jacob gave us this well. So now you can see the prophetic sign in this. So when Israel... Uh, meet Jesus. When this woman meets Jesus, when the Savior comes, they meet man or husband. They call them lovers. Their actual idols were called lovers. They loved their idols. Their lovers uh, or their husbands were five. They were with number six. And if you take it into John 4, Jesus says, this is who you've loved. Speaking of that nation and what they did. But who did this woman at the well meet? She met number seven perfection. She met the man of perfection, the husband of perfection. She met the husband of Israel, (laughs) Yahweh himself in Christ. Can you see the prophetic symbolic sign of this now from here? And that's why Jesus must needs go through Samaria. He's showing himself to where the people were. This is who the real God of this land is. This is who the savior of this people is. And that's where the gospel then comes to us from. So hopefully you can see that how there are there are times when throughout the, the the Bible you see all of these people come and going, but actually there's five husbands that are mentioned in Second Kings seventeen. Number six was the false apostasy of the of Israel's priest, and now number seven comes. They were waiting in Second Kings seventeen. The people, the land, were waiting for husband number seven. That is the lover of their soul, the perfect man. And Jesus, in John chapter four, 700 years later, 
must needs go through Samaria, but for to meet a sinner woman representing that house at a well. And what for? To fill her with the Spirit. (laughs) Save her soul and to fill her with the Spirit is not what we're saved with. We're saved through Christ and we're filled with the Spirit. See how this is all resembling here? So whenever we look at this, we're looking at the, the worship. You see, whenever we look at in our reading, the word uh, worship, we have looked at it extensively. So what we're going to do is, what is worship? We have looked at it how the proscuneo of the worship, that is the word worship in the Greek New Testament, proscuneo, gives the idea to come and lick or kiss the hand, the back of the hand. It could be to fall prostrate or on your knees, gives the idea of a dog licking his master's hand. This woman comes a sinner over to lick the hand of the master. But instead of him saying, lick my hand as the master, he lifts her up and he makes her an evangelist. Isn't that tremendous? That's grace for us, isn't it? That's love. That's what God does for us. Really, you know, we should be, as it were, like the dog licking the master's hand. But he, but Christ doesn't, he doesn't uh, require that. No, he requires of you. He requires that we come in reverence and respect, absolutely, and worship. He requires your heart that he may lift you up, that he may bless you. So, worship in the scripture, we've looked at it from part one, always is pertaining to a sacrifice. Okay? Always. Every single time there's worship, there's a sacrifice. And where there's a true sacrifice, it's because of worship. So, for example, uh, we looked at Abraham taking up Isaac to offer him up on Mount Moriah. And he says to the servants, use wait here, I and the lad will go yonder and worship and come back again. What was your worship, Abraham? It was to take my son up the mountain, put a knife through his heart and burn him to a crisp. Imagine that. That's the worship. You see, the thing is, worship should cost a sacrifice. Every time you and I come together to worship, it should cost us something in the sense that it costs us the effort to be there. It costs us the effort to press in. It costs us the effort to try and block everything out out of our hearts and our minds that Christ alone will be enthroned upon that which we're singing about, him. That he alone will be the center of it all. Worship is also expressed in praise in praise. Praise is the exaltation of the name of Christ. When you praise him and tell him who he is, God knows who he is. In fact, God tells us who he is. But when we tell God who he is in worship and singing and praise and prayer, you know what happens? We are exalting him. We're going to look at that in a moment too. It recognizes his greatness. By you telling him who he is, You're not surprising God by any means. But what you're saying is you know who he is. And you reverence, love, and respect him for who he is, not what he gives. That's praise. And so you're recognizing his greatness. And then we can worship him in prayer. In our prayers. 
And many of times, look, we all come and whenever we need, we pray for things and people and worries. And, and that's fine. I mean, I'm not saying anything against that. But what about worship and prayer? Praying into his willingness, not into his reluctance. That's what old Martin Luther said, you know. Some people, to hear them praying, you think, were praying against God's reluctance. To try and break through into God. No. Praying is like this... Uh, praying is, is, is the soul's breathing itself into the bosom of its heavenly father. When I'm praying, I'm not just spilling words out. Sometimes we feel like that, but to worship him in our prayer, you know, stand before him, Father, there's none like you. There's none beside you. You alone are God, the creator and the maker of heaven and the earth and all that in there is. Father, you alone are able. You are the great I am, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the ending, the first and the last. You're the ancient of days. Nothing is too difficult for thee and there's nothing too hard for you. Father, I am coming to you to recognize your greatness. Praying and worship. We're coming, as it were, to kiss the master's hand. And prayer is not us praying against his reluctance, but praying into his willingness. Remember, that's what Martin Luther said. Pray into God's willingness. Father, I'm coming to you because you love me. I'm coming to you because you're my heavenly father and you love me. I don't know why, but you do. And I'm coming because you love me. Now listen, Jesus said that if a son comes to one father and asks for bread, will he give him a stone, didn't he? And he says if he, if he asks for an egg, would he give him a, 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 an egg, would he give him a scorpion? Or if he asks for a fish, would he give him a serpent? And we're horrified. Go, no, we wouldn't dare do that for our children. We would give them everything that we have. We would bless them. And you all have to do is come and say, Father, Mom, Dad, Parent, you know. Jesus says, if ye then be an evil, the word is carnal human beings, but that level of ability and love for your own. He says, how much more will your Father give to the Holy Ghost? They give to them that love him. So when we worship, we're coming, and we're not praying even in worship just into against his reluctance. We are praying into his willingness that he loves us. Prayer has been once classed as love in need appealing to love and power. We'll say it again. When you pray, it's your praying as your love in need is appealing to love and power. So, We serve him because we worship. Worship is not just coming to church and singing songs. And even when the blessing comes and the Holy Ghost moves, and and that's fantastic, that's that's worship, but that's not only worship. Worship is an everyday walk, a living for Christ every day. Turn with me to Romans chapter 12, just briefly. Romans 12. Listen to verse 1. Verse 1. Romans 12, verse 1. 
Paul says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies. Notice, you present your body. A living, what is it? Sacrifice. Worship always demands a sacrifice. Your lifestyle and sacrificial lifestyle and living is worship unto God. And worship always is pertaining to a sacrifice. A living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. Reasonable service. Notice the term reasonable service. Do you know what it really means there? That it's your it's spiritual acts. A-C-T-S. Plural. Spiritual acts of worship. So you're presenting yourself, walking before God, a living sacrifice, you're actually having spiritual acts to God. Be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Now, we'll try and dissect that for you some other time in another study. But notice this, your body as a living sacrifice. I know there's been many martyrs over the years who have died for the sake of Christ. That's been their place and calling of God, then I leave that with God. But here's the thing. God wants you to live for him. He wants you to be a living sacrifice. So he wants you to be, we call them martyrs, but he wants you to be a, a martyr for him, to live for him, forgetting everything else that would be on his throne in your life. That is a spiritual sacrifice, and that's worship. Showing him your adoration and love. Go with me to Hebrews chapter 11, please. Hebrews chapter 11. And just let your eye run down to verse 21. Verse 21, by faith, Jacob, when he was a dying, notice, Jacob's dying, blessed both the sons of Joseph and worshipped, leaning upon the top of his staff. First of all, notice a dying man in his dying words, with his dying breath, although it's believed he lived a wee while long after this, he was like a creaking gate. But a dying man, a weak man, was still able, because of his spirit, to worship. What a way to enter eternity. What a way to enter into the presence of God. Dying, going in worshiping. Now the idea of worship leaning upon the top of his staff, he's blessing Ephraim and Manasseh here with his multiplication arms, as it were, the crossing over the arms, the right going on to Ephraim and the left going on to Manasseh. Joseph goes to remove them and he says, no, I know what I'm doing, son, because Ephraim becomes, means fruitful. And he's going to become a fruitful people, a nation and a company or a commonwealth of nations. And of course, uh, then the other hand, the blessing, even though Manasseh was the older son, but the other blessing goes to Manasseh, the other son. But here's what here's the point of it. While he was dying, he worshipped while leaning upon the top of his staff. The idea was as a shepherd, he had this big staff and he leans on it. 
And he draws strength out and he starts to worship. Why? Because he used to put a notch in his staff. Every time something significant happened, it was their diary. Like you'd get your diary out and say, today such and such happened and I was so and so, so. And well, what they'd done was they notched the notch. Some notches may have been bigger than others, they say, to mark that event. What about Jacob's life? What about things like when he was on the Bethel pillow stone, pillow stone and, he, and the, the ladder went to heaven and the Lord stood above the ladder and the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. What a notch would have been in his staff. Esau was wanting to kill him. He was running afraid and there's a notch because God turns up. What about when he wrestled with the angel of the Lord all night? He wrestled with Jesus all night. And the Lord turned his name from Jacob to Israel. What a notch on the staff. What about whenever old Laban tricked him and his wife? How thick could you be really? Like you've got, you're working for seven years for one and you end up waking up beside a different one. There's something wrong there. And so whenever, whenever this happens, he's another notch there. Think of all these things. So in his dying, he looks at where God was in his life past. He's looking the veil of death in the face. The chill of it comes upon him. The death dew, as it were, lies cold nearly on his brow. He's going to leave his family behind. He gets his staff and he looks at it. The valley of the shadow of death is just beyond. He says, Lord, I remember you found me there. I remembered you answered me there. And I remember you came in there. And I remember you were there when I thought you weren't. And I remember the angel of the Lord. And I remember the ladder from heaven. I remember the stone that I have anointed. I remember it all. And he's, he's remembering this. And says he starts to remember where God was, even though death finds him in the face. He's able not just to worship, but he's able to prophesy over his two sons. What a blessing can end of eternity. He's worshiping. Lord, you are always there. And that means you're not going to leave me. You always will be. Can you see this? Worship defeats the fear that the devil would put upon you. Worship defeats the doubt. Now remember, worship's not just singing and playing, and that's all part of it. Worship is the heart, knowing the God it serves, adoring the Christ it loves. Worship is knowing him where he's been all along, coming through for you when you thought things were maybe finished. Will you turn with me to um, 1 Kings chapter 8? 1 Kings chapter 8. Now, Solomon is about to dedicate the temple. A temple of grandeur. King David, who wrote the Psalms, is dead and gone. Solomon's about to dedicate the temple. 1 Kings chapter 8. And just a verse or two, just if you were to read this 
For example, skip with me just as I say this, okay? Um, Verse 17. And it was in the heart of David my father to build a house for the name of the Lord God of Israel. Notice the word, the name, okay? Verse 18. And the, and the Lord said to David, my father, whereas it was in thine heart to build a house unto my name, thou didst well that, that it was in thine heart. If you were to read through this, the whole way through this, you're going to find there's 13 times, now this is, this is something to listen, catch on to, 13 times the term, the name, is linked to the building of the house of the Lord and the worship of it. In this chapter, the name. The word, the term the name is the shem. It means the reputation of the Lord. The fame of God. That's what it means here. The reputation, the fame of who he is. Thirteen times it's mentioned. When you go to the woman at the well in John chapter 4, the strange thing is that the word the woman is mentioned 13 times in conjunction with the worship of the Lord. The difference is here, Solomon is in the place to worship and offer up, but in the Gospels of the New Covenant, the New Testament, the God whom Solomon worshipped has now come down to meet the woman in her humanity the sinner. 13 times. It's not tremendous. The great stoop of God to come down to where we were in all of our sin. Notice this in 1 Kings 8. And let your eye run down to verse 22. Verse 22. Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in the presence of all the congregation of Israel spread forth his hands toward heaven. Worship always postures what the heart is feeling. I'm going to say it again. Worship always postures what the heart is feeling. Spreads forth his hands bursting with love and adoration for Yahweh, the God of Israel. Postures. And he said, Lord God of Israel, notice how he worships now. There is no God like thee. (laughs) Isn't that lovely? There's nobody like you, Lord. Notice, in heaven above, nor on earth beneath, who keepeth covenant and mercy with thy servants that walk before thee with all their heart. So here Solomon is praying with the hands spread out in worship. From verse 22 to the end of the chapter, the, you'll find the blessings of the dedication and when Solomon enters into worship like this, that the term, the name is mentioned eight times out of the 13 in this little bit alone. Eight times. Starting to pick himself up in worship. Starting to press in to what God wants to do. And what does God want to do? Well, let's just look at it for a moment here. Let your eye run down, just for time's sake. Mark these and read them when you go home. It'll be helpful to you. Verse 54. 
And so, and it was so that when Solomon had made an end of praying, here's the end of the prayer, he starts in verse 22. Made an end of praying, all this prayer and supplication unto the Lord, he arose before the altar of the Lord. Notice where he is from kneeling on his knees with his hands spread up to heaven. And he stood and blessed all the congregation of Israel with a loud voice saying, Blessed be the Lord that hath given rest unto his people, Israel, according to all that he hath promised, and hath not failed one word of all his good promise, which he promised by the hand of his servant Moses. So now we find Solomon, he's not only on his stand with the hands out, he's fell down onto his knees. The temple and the sacrifice is happening. He fell down onto his knees. And when he makes an end of prayer, saying, there's none like you, O God. Even in all of heaven, there's none like you. Mark this down. Will you turn with me to Second Chronicles? Second Chronicles, chapter 6. This is another account of what we have just read in First Kings, chapter 8. But there's somewhere I want to bring you with this. Now, do I run down, please, the verse 12. It says, And he stood before the altar of the Lord in the presence of all the congregation of Israel and spread forth his hands. So here's where we are, we're reading from 1 Kings 8. Here is it rehearsed again in Second Chronicles 6. Okay? So when you read this, I haven't time to go through all of this and read it. But when you read this, notice what it says in... <clears throat> Excuse me, in verse 17. Now then, O Lord God of Israel, that thy word be verified which thou hast spoken unto thy servant David. But will God in very deed dwell with men on the earth? Where did you get that from, Solomon? Will God in very deed dwell with men on the earth? Where on earth did you get that from? Sure, God from Adam has never dwelt on earth with men. Yet this is what speaks of the coming of Christ. God comes to dwell with men on earth. He comes to the tabernacle before. He comes to the temple on that occasion when his glory would come to the Holy of Holies. But Lord, there's going to be a time when you will be here full time, all the time. Well, when we go to John chapter 4, Jesus says to the woman, you're not going to go up into Mount Gerizim in the northern kingdom, and you're not going to be down in Jerusalem in a temple. They're not going to be needed. He says, the true worshippers will worship the Father in the Spirit, and in truth, for the Father seeketh such to worship him. And that really means this, that not only is Jesus dwelling with men at his return, he's dwelling in men right now in the Spirit. Can you see this all linking up now? When Christ returns, the book of Revelation says, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men. What does that mean? What is the tabernacle of God? Well, God's glory was in the naos. And let me say this quickly. In the, in the original Greek text, what do you have for temple? You have two main words, a few words, but there's two main words that is used. One is helion, and the other one is naos. For example, Helion would be 
this building that we're in, the stone, the brick, the iron, whatever it's, it's made of, that is the, the original structural temple in Jerusalem. But the naos was the place where God's glory dwelt. The Holy of Holies was called the Naos. Why? Because that's where God's glory came down. But that changes now when Jesus says you'll not go to Jerusalem to worship nor up to this mountain to the woman. What is the Naos? Where is it then? You're the Naos. You are the Naos. And how do you know? Because the word for temple is Naos. But here, Paul tells us, know ye not that your body is the temple. The word temple is not on. You're not bricks and mortar. It's the word, know you not that you are the naos of the Holy Ghost which is in you. God's glory resides in you. God's spirit, he lives in you. You are the naos. So we're not going to go to Jerusalem, but to the naos, the holy place, because the temple veil was rent, the curtain from the top to the bottom when Jesus cried, it is finished. And the book of Hebrews tells us, wherefore he hath consecrated a new and living way for us into the Holy of Holies. In other words, you and I are are able to enter into God's presence to worship, whether you're here tonight, whether you're in your place of work, whether you're in your bedroom, your living room, or in a park, or over a field, in your car, you can worship the Lord in the Spirit. Worship him everywhere. And you're the naos, you are the temple of the Holy Ghost. See the difference now where Jesus is saying to the woman in John 4. So this conversation about worship was, it was radical because people wouldn't understand this. What do you mean? The temple's going to be demolished and wrecked in AD 70 and we're not going to be worshipping up here with our idols in the hills anymore. Jesus says no because the true worshippers they're going to be born of the Spirit with life from above into God's family divine. They're going to be born again. They're going to be worshipping just like you are, brother and sister, and just like I am. When we read Second Chronicles 6, notice here, verse 19. Let's read verse 18. But will God in very deed dwell with men on the earth? Behold, heaven... And the heaven of heavens cannot contain thee. How much less this house which I have built. Have respect therefore to the prayer of thy servant and to the supplication, to his supplication, O Lord my God, to hearken unto the cry and the prayer which thy servant prayeth before thee, that thine eyes may be upon this house day and night, upon the place whereof thou hast said that thou wouldst put thy name there, your reputation is staked on this, Lord, where this holy place is. Do you know what, brothers and sisters, because we have his name, you and I have the reputation of Christ. So that's why our witness matters. Because we're Christians and say, if you're God's like that, or if that's what a Christian is, the reputation of Christ. If you let your eyes just run down, just for time's sake here. He goes through all of this. Go to chapter 7. This is so important. Now when Solomon had made an end of praying, the fire came down from heaven. Isn't that mighty? I still believe that this still happens. It's whether we're sold out for him or not. It's 
whether our lives are living sacrifices, you know, because every time you read of a sacrifice on an altar before the Lord, you know what happens? Fire consumes it. Elijah's altar, fire came down from heaven. And here now in the temple, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices and the glory of the Lord filled the house. See if our lives are living sacrifices, wholly acceptable unto God, which is our reasonable service, or our lives are living sacrifices, wholly acceptable unto God, which are our spiritual acts of worship day in, day out, constantly before God, the fire will fall and the glory will come. That's the idea of this. How much more because we're in the new covenant in Christ? And notice what it says, and the priests could not enter into the house of the Lord because of the glory of the Lord had filled the Lord's house. Can you imagine if you came and turned up to church one day and we've all been seeking his face and so on fire for God by the time we get here, the Lord's here before us and we can't even get in because of his glory. Can you imagine that? We're all standing outside the door and afraid to come in saying, Lord, we want to get in. Will you make room for us? Can you imagine that? And when all the children of Israel saw how the fire came down and the glory of the Lord upon the house, they bowed themselves with their faces to the ground and upon the pavement and worshipped. It was they worshipped. And praised the Lord, saying, For he is good, for his mercy endureth forever. Now, when you go to verse 12, And the Lord appeared unto Solomon. Notice the revelation that comes. A sold-out life, a living sacrifice, brings fire, brings glory, brings worship, brings praise, brings revelation. Brings revelation. Now this woman at the well, when we go there, we're going to have to do another week because time's already away. But this woman at the well, you know what happened? Thou art a prophet. I perceive, sir, sir, I perceive, or I, I can see you're a prophet. I've had five husbands and the one I'm with now isn't my husband. There's number six. I perceive you're a prophet. No, it's not enough to say he's a prophet. He must bring you right through. He must bring you right through. Christ brings you, people are saved and they continue on sometimes in their religious spirit of worship thinking they've got it all and they haven't. It's a revelation. Now come ye out from among them and be ye separate, saith the Lord. And he gives the woman revelation because by the time they talk about worship and the true worshippers, she says, Thou art the Messiah. You're the one from God. You're God himself. See the difference? Brings revelation. The Lord appeared to Solomon by night and said unto him, I have heard thy prayer. That's enough, isn't it? It's not really enough. The Lord came and says to you, and you're, you're crying on to him for the desires of your heart or maybe some hurt or for your children or your family or whatever it may be, and you're worshiping him. And if the Lord stood before you and says, I've heard your prayer, we should be able to say even, Lord, you've heard, I believe it, you've heard my prayer, and that's enough. Shouldn't it really be that's it? But we don't. Sure we don't. Because you know then that's enough. 
So then we're trusting his big heart of love for us, you see. We're trusting his father's heart that he will give the spirit how much more? Remember earlier? You know about it, then that's enough. My daughters come in and said something to me and they're worried about something and I didn't answer it right away for them or do what they wanted right away. They would know I've already told my dad. My dad knows about this. My father knows. So he says here, I've heard thy prayer. And I've chosen this place to myself for a house. Notice, here's what churches don't like to hear. A house of sacrifice. Oh, it's a house of blessing and multitudinous of money and it's a house of whatever. Listen, <laughs> it's a house of sacrifice. God's temple is a house of sacrifice. Living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service, continuous worship before him, in other words, living a lifestyle out before Christ. And you see, you get this when we post on Facebook, and you get people putting it up on their wall, and they're on fridge magnets, Second Chronicles chapter 7 and verse 14. But all of that was before this. If my people which are called by my name shall humble themselves and pray. Don't you? But that's just that wee bit. The Lord says, my house will be a house of sacrifice. And if my people. It's the difference. I'm guilty by the way. I've done that too. That's not a condemnation. If my people which are called by my name shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and forgive their sin and heal their land. So, worship is not only coming together to sing. Worship is knowing Christ from the heart sacrificing self, whether that be in that particular meeting. Corporate worship is when we gather together. And whether it's, whether it's in that particular meeting where we are given ourselves over and maybe we've had a horrible day or week or whatever, but we are saying, Lord, I'm here just to worship you. You're so great, I'm leaving it with you. It's trusting. Worship is trusting him that he knows best. going to close see worship is no longer worship when it reflects the culture around us more than the Christ within us that was A.W. Tozer said that worship is no longer worship when it reflects the culture around us more than the Christ within us I'm not trying to be cruel I'm not trying to be hurtful but there's so many things going on in church now to replace worship where people think it's worship and they do it to draw in the crowd and it reflects the culture that's around us that's not worship that is not worship 
worship is, is whether it's you in your own or some of us together, it's living your life before Christ sacrificially. It's a living sacrifice, spiritual acts of worship throughout the day. It is your heart enamored with Jesus. This is a Pentecostal church. I'm a Pentecostal to the core. Right to the very, you cut me and I bleed Pentecostals. (laughs) But I am not a charismaniac who will go with everything and anything. That's not me. And people say, the Holy Ghost, the Holy Ghost, the Holy Ghost. And listen, I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Ghost. Yes, we seek the Spirit for things. Ask the Lord to help us through his Spirit. Yes, that's fine. Really? Don't seek the Holy Ghost. Seek the Lord Jesus Christ. And you'll find you have the Holy Ghost. It's the difference. Seek Jesus. Because only through the Spirit can you do that. And that's when you realize the Spirit wells and builds within you. I may have to do one more week, if you still mind. Listen to what Paul says. I'll round this here, and that's us. 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 8. In posture and worship and prayer, exalting the name of Christ. I will, therefore, that men pray everywhere. (laughs) I will that you just pray in the prayer meeting. Nope. I will that you just pray when you are all together. No. I will that you pray in Mount Gerizim. No. In Jerusalem. No. I will that you pray at the feet of a statue or if, at the feet of, of the uh, of the Church of Ireland at the big doors, wherever they do right there, you know, or at the altar real. No, 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 no. Everywhere you're walking around, you're talking to the Lord. You have spiritual acts of worship. His, your heart is enamored with Christ. In love with Christ. I would that men pray everywhere. Notice, lifting up holy hands. Now, there's nothing holy about us but the Holy Ghost. You're the holy place. You are the naos, the temple of the living God. So we can lift up our hands, living before him, walking before him, worshiping and sacrificial lifestyle with him. Lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. Listen to Psalm 134 and verse 2. Lift up your hands in the sanctuary and bless the Lord. Now hold on a minute. How do we bless the Lord who has everything? What does that mean? How do we bless him? God of the heavens and the earth, the creator, the maker, the keeper, the sustainer of all things, that ever there was and is, he who was before all things and will be after all things. This is almighty God, the great eternal spirit. Jesus says in John 4, God is a spirit. In the original text it says, God is spirit. It's not he's a spirit and there's another spirit or other spirits in that sense. 
He is spirit, the eternal spirit, the eternal God. How do we bless God? You know how God blesses you, don't you, when he gives to us and he keeps us and he meets our need and we're blessed in the spirit and we're blessed when he, he helps us and when he directs us and we're blessed in his word. We're, we're blessed in our going out and we're blessed in our coming in. You know, and we know that we're being blessed, but how do we bless God? A man came and asked me that one time, years ago. He says, Ken, could you answer me something? How do we bless God? Well, let me show you this. I'm definitely shutting here, okay? The last one was a false alarm. <laughs> Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3. Pardon me. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. Sorry. Pardon me. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. Okay? Here's the blessing that Paul blesses God with. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Notice, blessing God. Blessed be God. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. See the word there for blessed. It's a, it's a word called eulegatas or eulego. Okay? And it gives the idea of, there's two words involved that are put together to make this word eulegatas or eulego. You, as in E-U, as a, that's the English pronunciation of it. Um, and it means good or it means well. And legatas or lego is where we would get, it's close akin to the word logos, to speak the word, in other words. In the beginning was the logos, the word. The word was with God, where it was God. And this one is lego means to speak as well. It's just in a different context. When you put the two of these together, it makes up the word eulegatas or eulegos. So blessed is that word, okay? This is the way it would read. Paul is saying, here's how you bless God. Speak well of him. Speak good of him. There's your worship. For when you do, when you sing about his glory, when you sing about his person and who he is, when you sing about all that God is, when you pray, when you speak about it, you know what you're doing? You're blessing your heavenly Father. You're blessing him. Imagine Psalm, or Solomon. He spreads his hands. He says, Lord, God of Israel, there is none like you in heaven and on the earth. Speaking well of him. What about in your heart? Worship him with your acts of worship. Let the sacrificial offering come. Let the, 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 the fire may fall. And you're coming before him. Father, truly you are good to your people. You have saved me from a, a lost eternity. You've come and blessed me with the gospel of your word. You've sent your son to shed his blood. And, and you are great and there's none like you and there's none beside you. There is none other. There's no close second unto you. You are almighty God. 
speaking well of him. Oh, I love you and I worship you. I praise you. I exalt you. I adore you. I thank you. There's none like you. Come on, that's how we should be. See when we're meeting, see when we're singing. Just let your heart rise up. Paul says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us. Now the word bless is the same, but it doesn't give the idea that he speaks well of us. That means he does us good. We bless you. You do us good. That's the idea of this. So in the psalmist, Psalm 134 and verse 2 says, Lift up your hands in the sanctuary and bless the Lord. You know what it means? Lift up your hands and show an act of adoration to God. That's what it means. Don't be afraid to lift up your hands and say, Lord, I adore you. I worship you. I love you. I thank you. I praise you. Now, this is a conversation we've had tonight about worship. And sometimes I see people who are going to worship and they go to some meetings and you know, if you were a hunter hunting ducks and they were ducks, you wouldn't have any problems shooting them all out. They don't move. They're like tin soldiers. You know, it's like the fairground. There's just nothing in them. There's nothing in them. They don't know worship. They don't know what it's like to sacrifice themselves. Pour themselves out like water before him. They can't be gathered up again. I am giving myself to you. You know what happens when you seek the face of Jesus? You seek the giver, not the gifts. You seek the healer, not the healing. That's who we do. That's who we seek. 